From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Chai. John Sanai is a futurist. He's someone who works with executive managers and, and teaching people in business how to understand and deal with the future. He's spoken on TED Talks. He's all over the media. He writes a book every single year, which is a real, really uh, impressive feat if you've ever had to write anything more than just an article. And he joins us now for his new book that he's written called Future Next. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us on the New Blue Review. My absolute pleasure. Always great to be with you guys. Uh, I uh, have been with High FM many times and uh, I went to school in Sandringham High. So it's kind of in my hood where I grew up. Now, John, I'm going to tell you something that wasn't planned for me as the first part of the show. I also went to Sandringham High. Uh, oh. So I feel like this is a fantastic uh, reunion. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. When did you matriculate? I matriculated 2005. Uh, so, oh my God! Uh, no, no, I was I was long gone by then, dude. I was. Uh, were you Were you with Trevor Noah? So, so yeah, I was. Uh, Trevor, Trevor was in at the same time as as me, but not within the same grade. So he would have been like grade eleven when I was in grade eight. Right, so, right, uh, right. so, yeah. so okay, we're talking well, yeah. to John Sanai, who's the second most favorite uh, famous person ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I like second, second to Trevor Noah is a hell of a, a great place to be. So wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. John, amazing. So tell us for a start with the book. You know, we just hit level four lockdown and, and people are going a little bit crazy. And really a lot about your book is dealing with uncertainty. Even when you wrote the book, you sort of started off somewhere and then you had the apocalypse to deal with and suddenly you had to write a new book. So, Six months in since you sort of really got it out to the public, where are you sitting with the book and its lessons and how are we dealing with uncertainty? Well, you know, the thing is, is that our society has been built on certainty. If you think about business, what you educate, what you went to study was always about to have the safe and certain outcome. As human beings, we don't like uncertainty. And so what has happened is that we have a society that's almost addicted to certainty. And now all of a sudden we don't have it. And there's massive panic in the air because of the lack of certainty. And so what I wanted to write the book about is how do you actually adjust your brain to be okay with uncertainty? And then how do you go about planning for a future that is uncertain? And so the book was a culmination of some mental tools some business tools, some economic strategic suggestions that Dr. Iraj Abadion and I put into the book. And so where we are right now is kind of exactly what we kind of predicted is that we will have continuous uncertainties for the next few years. And it's because the COVID-19 virus started off as a medical issue and has mutated to become a socioeconomic tsunami of change. And I think, John, I mean, in, in some respects, yeah. we never had a certain world even before COVID, right? We always had, not always, but in the last while, we've been going through disruptive technologies. Uh, we've had crashes in the economic system in, in 2008, uh, political systems that were unstable. All of this, 
was kind of pointing to a world that was going to be unstable anyway. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just think it came sooner than we all expected it to. You know what I mean? We were all still holding on to any form of certainty that we had, and now it's just been taken out. So let me give you an example, a practical example. Every single uh, structure in society that we once implicitly trusted, we don't trust anymore. And it's almost as if education is not good enough anymore. It doesn't matter what you study. It doesn't guarantee you anything. Hard work inside a business doesn't guarantee you anything. Your past success doesn't guarantee you anything. All of these things that used to guarantee us some sort of solace don't give us any form of solace and i think it's just the speed at which it has arrived i think in the back of the book uh, we have a line that says the future arrived earlier than any of us expected it to and so that's really what has happened it's, it's been fast-tracked and so what happens in a world of uncertainty when you know that the next two weeks to six months to one year you have no idea how and what it's going to be and really this is the, the, the concept that we're trying to get across is that our brains are doing something called DPO all the time. And just in our neuroscience, you can see that we program for certainty. So what does DPO stand for? It stands for duration, path, and outcome. And so our brains are continuously trying to categorize every single engagement we have through the day to give us an idea of how long it's going to take, duration, what's going to happen on the path, and what's the expected outcome. And here we are in a world today that there is no DPO when it comes to the major structural societal shift that we're in at the moment. And that's the thing is that we first need to become clear and aware of why our brains are taking strain. And once we have that awareness, we can then now start to mold a different type of perspective. Because we talk a lot about in the book about the effects of this, which is the issue of anxiety, right? People are scared or anxious, they don't really know what the future is. And this is now something that people are living with all the time, whether it's about their jobs, whether it's about, as you say, about what they're studying, whether it's about what is the president going to say at the family meeting. Anxiety mm -hmm. has become a kind of all-pervasive feeling that they're, and, and it's very destructive and, and almost paralyzing in terms of people mm -hmm. trying to make decisions. Yeah, so if we if we think about the relationship to our emotional fitness, to our physical fitness. And if you ever go, if you've never done a, a day of exercise in your life, and then you get told to go and run a 21 kilometer race, you'll find yourself out of breath and totally unfit and incapable to deal with that sort of length of race. When we are anxious all the time, what has happened is we become emotionally unfit. And it really is a new muscle that we need to start developing within us. And let me explain, because over the last 300 years, we have had to change which parts of our body we use to make decisions. And so in the agricultural times, what we had was our brawn, our muscles, our understanding of the seasons and the soil. And that made us successful and got us to trade in the markets and make our family eat good food. Then we went into industrial times and all your agricultural skill sets were almost null and void because what you needed to really excel in the industrial revolution was a left brain, logical, intelligent approach to life that was process driven and systemized in a certain way. That's why accountants, Excel spreadsheets and mathematics was really a fantastic skill to have in the industrial revolution. 
But as we know that everything left brain, automated, repeated, and with pattern recognition is being automated away from us. Artificial intelligence and data points are taking over this. And so what is the new skill that we need to be developing in a world where most things will be automated is intuition, is this ability to be heart-led, to be curiosity-led, not logic-led. And this is the massive difference, is that people that are still holding on to the logical driven idea of developing structures for the future are becoming very, very anxious because underneath that anxiousness is an addiction to certainty. Now, when you're able to let go of that and you're able to understand that that is not available to us anymore, you can start utilizing a very different approach that's more intuitive-led, more curiosity-led, and more excitement-led. And this is the move away from the surplus society that we're in right now towards something called the creator economy or the passion economy. We're talking today to John Sanai on 101.9 Chai FM, the New Blue Review, and talking about the world as it used to be before the apocalypse and what it now is, and how is it that we are going to be coping. And we were just before the break talking about the issue of how the world has moved more intuitively, more creatively, and and more into a space where we have to deal with uncertainty. And John, one of the places that I think is going to be big in that respect is in the place of automation, because a lot of jobs will start to be replaced in the future, and not just low-level jobs, people who work in factories say, or or from a, when I'm in low level at a cognitive ability, but you know, you have doctors that are having their abilities to read X-ray scans, for example, being replaced yeah. by AI as well. So it's also higher cognitive functions. And that means that we really need to rethink how yeah. we develop skill sets, which is, I think, where you yeah. were going before we before interrupt. Yeah. So, so I think the thing is, is if we can get all the listeners to imagine a world without electricity, it would be a terrible place. And we have now become absolutely reliant on electricity. And I want the listeners to think about automation, which is artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data points. And the combination of those is the new electricity. And so we must think about that many jobs were displaced when electricity arrived, but new ones were developed. And as we have automation arriving, which will affect pretty much every single job. And let me give you an example. As an author, somebody who writes a book every year, is there's a there's a couple websites now. One of them is called HyperWrite. Go and check it out yourself. You can put a title into this website and it asks you, do you want to write, do you want it to write a blog post, an essay, or a book for you? And then it starts writing for you. And this is all unique. First time fresh wording because you can copy and paste it and put it into Google and it can't find it anywhere. So there's an AI website right now that's disrupting authors. So this means that doctors, lawyers, accountants, drivers and tellers all will have parts of their jobs, if not all of their jobs, automated away. So if we can't compete with logical system-led data point robots and artificial intelligence, what we need to do is realize what is it they can't do. And there's two very key things they can't do. No emotional connection and no social cohesion. And those are the things that we need to focus on because as a lawyer, you still need an emotional connection to your client and an ability to bring social cohesion and relevant information to your client. 
So you'll have robots and machine learning doing the contracts and understanding, putting dates together for the courts. But the person that'll be holding the hand of that client will be you as the lawyer. So we have to realize that many of the things, the rudimentary things that we went to school for and to university for, to parrot, learn, and to learn these systems and processes are actually leaving us and becoming irrelevant for us to learn. And we have to develop this level of intuition, curiosity, and excitement. And this is where it leads us into the passion economy and the creator economy. One of the parts of your book that you also talk about is the issue of the media, right? Because when we're talking about social cohesion and and trying to develop, as you say, empathy, one of the places you have not been finding that, certainly in the last 10 to 20 years with the development of social media, has been in the media. It's a place for division. It's a place for argument. And you warn very specifically against people not understanding their media consumption habits. And I think it's just something I really think that it's worth diving into because if you're going to develop the kind of skill set that you're doing, it maybe doom scrolling your Twitter every day is not the best way to start developing that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you used that term doom scrolling because I was going to say that because it is kind of a doom scrolling process. I think the thing is, is we have to realize that media is having this sort of division of society only because it's magnifying the existing issues that people that don't want to evolve are having. And the people who don't want to evolve are going back down to nationalism, racism, xenophobia. And it's because they don't want to evolve, they're not blaming whoever they can blame for whatever the issues they have, rather than evolving and actually becoming part of the new world. And I think social media is just highlighting this aspect. What I always try and get people to understand is that the most important thing, as Mark Twain said many, many, many years ago, he said, the two most important days of your life are when you're born and when you find out why. And when you find out why, which is what God has gifted us with, because as the Romans called it, the pocket of genii that we all have over our heads is something that we need to access. And when we do access it, guess what? You don't have time for drama. You don't have time for social media. You don't have time for doom scrolling because the thing that makes you come alive is the gift that you've been given by God. And so for me, it's this drive towards society moving away from fitting in, which is what society has gotten us to do for the last 200 years. Because you remember when you finish school, especially as a good Jewish boy, what could you be? A lawyer, an accountant or a failure, right? There were no other options. There was that kind of, that was what you had to fit into. I've got some Indian friends that can add accounting to that. And also, if I didn't fit into one of those, my family would think I'd be a failure. Today, what we have is something called the surplus society, which means that we have far too many doctors, lawyers, accountants, and engineers, because that's all we've been training people to do for the last 200 years. So I'm wanting people to step out of that Uh, sort of mold and step into their own mold. And when they do, then the only thing they can do is collaborate because they can't compete because somebody else doesn't have your curiosity, doesn't have your genius. And so this new world that we're moving into is not so much about studying the thing to fit into the organization. It's about finding your own genius and then proliferating that out into the world. It's almost as if we're going back to pre-industrial times, because if you think about it, Pre-industrial times, every town, village, and little, whatever it was, little town, little village had its own butcher, baker, and candlestick maker. They were full of micro-businesses, and the whole world was full of micro-businesses because we didn't have the communication, the transportation, or anything to build large-scale businesses. So here we are today where we're starting to see people develop micro-businesses from their own house 
And now their village or their town is not uh, there based on borders. It's based on people's interest and curiosity. That's why there are so many young people around the world building these amazing, massive businesses based on their creativity and their passion, selling it to a tribe of people all around the world. And that is what we need to be focusing on on our youth is developing the personal genius skill that we have, understanding how the internet works, and then proliferating it out. John Sonai, today we're talking about the post-COVID world and what it is that we can do to start to think about how we work within it. Uh, John, it was actually going to be my next question, talking about youth and education, because when you talk about industrialization, really the schooling system comes from 19th century, late 18th century institutions around how we had to take care of kids and make them effective for the world. And people are increasingly not comfortable with how our education systems are creating those sorts of outcomes. Is this something you think about a lot? And, and where do you think our education systems are going? Well, I think that it's a very tough time for the educational systems themselves, as well as parents, as well as kids. It's, it's that transformation between the old linear world towards this new digital dynamic world. So, Yes, I think everybody's suffering from it, and it's nobody's fault, really. It's just that the world that we come from needed that education system. This new world we're going into hasn't quite found what it should be teaching people, because the truth is, if you don't know what the future looks like, what are you going to teach people? You know, it's very difficult to teach a subject when you actually don't know what the next 10 years look like. So it's not so much teaching people what to think, but how to think. And it's always based on one fundamental characteristic. And there was some research done by some major universities. There's actually great TED talks about it. The one characteristic that makes you successful over every other characteristic, and it's not your background, it's not your gender, it's grit. It's the ability to be per to have perseverance. Now, in a world that's constantly changing, you can't have grit for something you don't love. You can't have perseverance for some logical notion. You can only really push the boundaries with grit when it comes to something you're passionate about and something you're curious about. So we have to develop youth that are first and foremost developed and understood what their passion is, what their creator genius is. The second thing we need to be doing with our youth is teaching them entrepreneurial skills because the world of employment and employee is just not comfortable and guaranteed anymore. You know, I, I find it really difficult that in South Africa, we're training our youth to get jobs and then there's no jobs. So what's the point of teaching people how to get jobs, some low level diploma that really gets you to become very much part and parcel of the surplus society with millions of other people with that low level diploma? The thing we need to be doing is two, two very clear things. The mindset to find your passion, the internet-based entrepreneurship skills, and then allow these youth to develop their own ways of developing businesses based on the tool sets that we have that will get us ready for the future rather than the past tool sets of education and employment. A lot of people in this debate, when you start to talk about automation and, and all of this kind of thing, they say, you know, you know what the actual solution is? You know where we actually have to go? The UBI, universal basic income, the, the, the robots will do everything, we'll somehow tax them, and the taxes will go to people so that they can do something else, right? But it sounds to me like you're actually offering a slightly different scenario of the future, not passive people who are just getting an income from the state, but actually saying, well, we've got all these bunch of tools and we're actually going to have to have people who are kind of next future, next level, who engage with them. Am I, am I right that there's a slightly different view of, of, of this in, in, in your thinking? 
Well, look, I don't think anybody should be passive. I mean, what a waste of life. You know, God has given you a brain and a heart, connect them, understand why you've been put here and then add value to the fabric of human society. Why do you want to be passive in anything that you're doing? You know, I think that's a, I think that's a, it's an insult to your ability to be here on earth. So for me, it's always about being action orientated and adding value. And how, what are the best ways we can do that? And the best ways we can do that is really start to empowering ourselves. You know, we also have to realize that today, we all have a louder microphone than we've ever had. And we've seen ground swells change our reality. The Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, Greta Thunberg um, with the environment, uh, GameStop. And it's challenging the old ways that uh, hedge funds have worked. We start, we're seeing these ground swells happen all around the world. And why shouldn't we be part of these ground swells to change the world that we're moving into? I think it's enough that we sit on the sidelines, that we blame, shame our past, the government, the whatever we want to, taking on a victim mindset rather than actually being empowered and saying, you know what, I want to participate in this future. I want to be part of it. And the way I need to do that is I need to develop my own intrinsic genius to be able to add that to the world. And so, no, I don't think a passive world is anything anybody should be striving to do. And also remember another thing. There's a guy called Jeremy Rifkin. He's a global economist. He's written a couple of great books. One of them is a New York Times bestseller called The Zero Marginal Cost Society. And in it, what he explains is that anytime anything is digitized, it's almost it's repeated for almost free. And so we're moving to the zero digital, um, zero marginal cost society in a digital future, meaning that you can take as many photos as you want, replicate them and send them for almost free. Communication has happened to the same thing. And so you can now communicate for almost free to as many people as you want. Next is going to be energy. Next is going to be transportation. And anything that becomes digitized has the same pattern attached to it. So it's not so much about a UBI. I think technology itself is already starting to take care of many of the things that used to cost us a lot of money are starting to become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But as human beings, we're weird, you know. You remember when Vodacom used to charge us three rand a minute and now WhatsApp's for free and all of us are becoming like, yeah, well, that's normal. Well, it wasn't normal. Just four years ago, we were paying two, three thousand rand on cell phone bills. Now we have a Wi-Fi bill at home and that's it. We don't have anything else. And that's going to become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So we must realize that we're also moving into a world called the zero marginal cost society. And the thing that will be happening is that most of our um, basic needs will be taken care of utilizing digitization and the replication that digitization brings to our reality. And on top of that, we need to access our genius and then add value to the world. That's my drive and that's my message. Now, one of the things that struck me also about the book is your co-author, right? You you spoke to, you wrote, wrote this with Iraj I, I, Ibadian. 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 <laughs> it's going to be a while. Um, a great guy, but but in some ways, very much data driven, almost left brain driven in a way, right? Very much focused on the economy, big picture. I'm interested. Why did you choose him, and and what role does that access to data play in the kind of future that you're imagining? Because because the one of the risks with being empathetic and uh, and and sort of intuitive is that is that it's just how you feel, right? And you could you risk not actually knowing what the picture is in front of you if you don't have the proper data. And I'm wondering where you see that dynamic playing out. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, the reason I brought Iraj on was, you know, I was writing another book called The Value of the, the Evolving Value of Things before 
before COVID. And then when COVID happened, obviously I wrote this book. And what happened was I, I got upset, not upset. I just got frustrated with my clients asking me to take them back to normal. And that we remember, you remember the first sort of three, four months, people were in a desperate need to get, just get back to some, some, some level of normality. And so what I was trying to get right in that book is, look, why don't we try and reimagine something new? Why don't we try and reimagine a new socioeconomic system that allows more people more access to more of the good things rather than it being such a big disparity between the rich and the well and the poor? And so when I started writing about the economics and the options of economies for the future, I just realized I was out of my depth, you know. And so I emailed Iraj and I said, look, I'm writing this book. Do you want to just take a read of what I've done already and let me know what you think? And he came back with two responses. One, I'm absolutely on board with what you're trying to do. But two, you've made some fundamental mistakes in some of your points here when it comes to economy. So I thought, well, fantastic. This is your opportunity to jump on. So I just brought him on to give me some gravitas and some depth of knowledge when it comes to understanding economies. Now, the thing is, is that I am very intuitive as far as I use my emotions to make decisions and he uses the left brain. And I think that one, like one of them on their own isn't as powerful as having both of them together. And I think some data, some grounding, some experience that Iraj brings is also great to be attached to my reimagination and actually, you know, striving for the moon and really bringing about massive change to the world. I think the combination was necessary to try and ground the information in a way that was more palatable for people rather than it being too philosophical, but actually bringing in some real data where Iraj was uh, really instrumental in that process. On Sanai, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show today. He is a futurist. He's book is next future definitely worth reading and uh, thank you so much for being with us on the show the second most famous person to ever come out of San Diego High School <laughs> I love that I'm going to add that to my uh, signature on my on my computer thank you so much Benji great to chat to you man